feet a little harder. Um, my wife and I were talking after last Sunday, um, seeing the video for the first time. Just the news, right? Just the news pops up and you go, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, know, like, I don't know about you, but my reaction to news these days is like, I get tense. Um, this, uh, this event coming up on the gift of gender is featuring our, our friend, Dr. Sam Andreades. Um, I first met um, him when he came to the Triangle maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago. I don't remember exactly the time, but he was speaking at our sister church, Peace Presbyterian in Cary, and they hosted a dinner for pastors to come and just have a roundtable dinner with him. And I remember going to that dinner with all these questions that I had written down. And, um, and it was incredibly enlightening and helpful um, to have a conversation with him. Um, he was incredibly insightful. And, um, and I now have a whole new set of questions um, that have developed over the last five years that I'm looking forward to asking him. And so I, I hope you'll join us for this event on October um, 20th, 21st that weekend. Um, it's going to be great, and it's going to be um, hopefully very helpful to us as we seek to navigate questions of gender um, that have really grown up and become um, very large, loomed very large in our society today. Um, so please plan to join us for that. Um, uh, hopefully that will help us as a church to engage in those questions and engage the world. Um, so we are continuing our series that kind of goes along with this um, special event um, called Co-Laborers, Co-Heirs. Well, now, while the event kind of deals specifically with questions of gender, cultural questions, uh, our sermon series is, is looking to Scripture to look at specifically um, relationships of men and women in the Bible and how God has used that, those relationships for His glory. And so kind of the outline of the sermon series, we're going through four different relational stories of men and women in the Old Testament and four passages that deal with the relationships between men and women in the New Testament. So it's an eight-part sermon series. Last week, Jeff started with Adam and Eve, right? The original <laughs> male-woman relationship. Um, so that was last week. And this morning, we're going to be turning and looking at um, Moses and Miriam in the book of Exodus. Um, and the passage for this morning is Exodus 1 through 21, not Genesis. Um, as your bulletin says, it's Exodus 1 through 21. Um, and I, we're going to read that together, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll talk about it. So let's read God's Word together. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has thrown into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The waters cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, destroys the enemy. 
And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send out your burning anger, and it consumes them like chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils. I shall be satisfied against them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, You reached out with your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your faithfulness, you have led people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were terrified. The leaders of Moab trembled, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have despaired. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, which you have made as your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the tambourine in her hand And all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Great work. That was a lot to read. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful song and this description of this worship service that occurred on the other side of the Red Sea, on the other side of your deliverance. Lord, as we consider this passage and specifically uh, as we consider the relationship between Moses and his sister Miriam, Lord, we pray that you would enliven our hearts. Help us to see what you would have us to see. Lord, help us to see how you and your glory is the purpose of our existence. Help us to see how the celebration of your redemption is our highest call. And Lord, lead us into a place where we can do that together in beautiful harmony, in a way that honors you and glorifies you, as this worship service did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we're looking at these different relationships. Last year, I, last week was Adam and Eve, right? Uh, this, this week, Moses and Miriam. And here's how I want you to think about this, okay? Um, this, we're, we're looking at Exodus 15. Obviously, Moses and Miriam's story is spread over the pages of Scripture beyond just Exodus 15. But I would argue that this is the height, 
the, the moment in which they were functioning at their highest level together, okay? And so that's, that's why we're looking at this passage, but I'm going to be bouncing around all through Exodus, some of Numbers, even into um, the prophet Micah to talk a little bit about their relationship. Um, and, and the reason is, is that it's an incredibly significant relationship uh, and it's an incredibly beautiful story about how God worked through both of them together and then led them to this place where they celebrated that together and not only celebrated it with each other, but led God's people in a grand celebration of all that God had done through them, okay? Um, here's how you can think about it. You know, there's been several kind of like modern or more or less modern musical acts that have been brother-sister acts, Right? Like, you might think of, like, Donnie and Marie, those of you who are a little older, right? Donnie and Marie Osmond, remember them? Brother-sister act, right? Maybe you, think about, um, uh, maybe you think about somebody a little bit more recent, like um, maybe Michael and Janet Jackson, right? right? It's not uncommon for, like, musical acts because, like, families, right, they cultivate that. I think about the Yanceys um, and what their, like, family worship must look like because they have so much talent in that family, right? Uh, but it's not uncommon for brothers and sisters to have these kind of, like, musical gifts and then to use them together. And when I was, when I was like, in college, I think, VH1 came out with a series that was called VH1 Behind the Music, right? And you would watch these stories, like, you know, these documentaries, essentially, that were about songs or artists um, and, and their production of music. Um, that's how we're approaching this sermon. You've just read the song, right? Now we're going to talk about the story behind the music. Um, essentially, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of review Moses and Miriam's role specifically in the Exodus narrative, um, and specifically in Exodus 1 through 15, right? Um, so we're going to be kind of like doing a lot of summary of kind of all that God did through both Miriam and Moses in those chapters. And then we're going to look at their specific titles. Uh, Moses is the most significant prophet of the Old Testament. The most. In fact, in the New Testament, anytime there is a representative of Old Testament prophets, it's Moses. Anytime you talk to a Jewish person about kind of like the summary of the prophetic kind of like text of the Old Testament, Moses is that representative. He is the most significant prophet of the Old Testament. Miriam is the first woman to be referred to in Scripture as a prophetess. So we're going to look at their role as prophet and prophetess and how God used that specifically. And then finally, we're going to look at this worship service. And we're going to look at how that was the culmination of all of that and what we have to learn from that. So to review, here's your outline. Moses and Miriam's role in the Exodus narrative. Moses and Miriam as prophet and prophetess. And Moses and Miriam in worship specifically. Okay, so let's, um, let's summarize the Exodus story, shall we? <laughs> um, most of you have probably seen Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, and so this is familiar territory for many of us. I don't think that I have to spend a lot of time on this, but let's begin with the beginning of the story, Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's a big problem in Exodus 1, all right? God's people have become enslaved in Egypt, and not only have they become enslaved, but Pharaoh has forgotten Joseph right? And, and they are being oppressed. They are being crushed. And, and, but even in the midst of that, God is blessing them, being fruitful and multiplying like rabbits, 
apparently. And, and Pharaoh sees that as a real problem because they're becoming more prominent in his land than his people. And so he decides we've got to do some population control, right? And he begins by kind of like heaping more work on them, hoping that that would, you know, uh, essentially like limit their reproductive processes. Um, but that didn't work. <laughs> they continued to multiply. And so he issues an edict where he actually kind of orders the killing of all Hebrew males, right? And initially that effort goes through um, like midwives that he's appointed to just like, hey, if it's a boy, kill him, right? Um, but the midwives don't follow the rules. They don't do that, right? And so then, then he kind of issues this edict. They, they just throw the boys in the Nile, right? Throw them in the river, um, and, and, and essentially, like, that is the death sentence that he issues for that entire generation, um, Moses' generation, of male Hebrew children. And then we have this incredible story of Jochebed, right, Moses' mother, actually following the rules. She takes Moses and puts him in a river, right, into the Nile, in an ark, right? And we have, like, there's heavy overtones of kind of like, remember Noah? Remember that story, right? It's the only other place where the, the word ark appears in Scripture. But Moses is placed in an ark, a tiny basket, <laughs> right? And, and shoved off down the river. And then there's this, this little detail about a sister. A sister, not named, actually, in the beginning of Exodus. But this sister follows along to see what would happen to him. Like, what's going to happen to my little baby brother, Right? And she follows along and she watches as the basket is led, where, like surprisingly, to Pharaoh's own household, where Pharaoh's own daughter is bathing with, with, with her kind of handmaidens. And they find this child and they're like, oh, it's one of the Hebrew children. And Pharaoh's daughter, right, is like, takes pity on him. She's like, oh, he's, he's so beautiful. Let's, let's like keep him, <laughs> right? And at that moment, the sister comes to Pharaoh's daughter and she says, essentially, like, hey, do you need somebody to, like, nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter goes, that would be amazing, actually. Do you know anyone? <laughs> and, and the sister's like, well, actually, I do. And Pharaoh's daughter says, great, take the child, have them nursed, I'll pay you for it. <laughs> right? Do you get the humor and the beauty of kind of like how God preserves Moses in that story? It's, it's a very, very powerful tale. And what I want you to notice is from Exodus 1 through Exodus 2, almost all of the major players are women. There is kind of this narrative that Christians believe in a God who oppresses women, who doesn't, that doesn't really value women, that the Bible essentially kind of like downplays women's roles. But I want you to see, like, if there's no Jochebed, if there's no midwives, if there's no Miriam, if there's no Pharaoh's daughter, there's no Moses. Exodus ends at Exodus chapter 2. So the principal first heroes, the instruments of God's redemptive work in the story of Exodus are all women. Do you see that? And if you study Scripture carefully, if you read the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, you will find that God works in shocking ways through women throughout Scripture, especially when you consider the cultural landscape in which the Bible was written, which was a cultural landscape of oppression to women for the most part. The ancient world was not kind to women. And yet in the Bible, we see a document that very clearly highlights women's roles and lauds them 
and, and holds them up as an example of, of a group of people that God works through regularly. Now, there's two things that I want you to think about with this. One, those of you who are maybe new to Christianity or maybe you're not a Christian and you have, kind of have heard this narrative that Christians really just hate women and the Bible really hates women, I, I just want to challenge you. Read it. Read Scripture and look at how Scripture actually talks about women. Look at how Jesus interacts with women. Come to your own conclusions. Don't buy into the cultural narrative. Now, the other thing that I want to say is those of you who are Christians, those of you who are part of this church, there are probably things that Christians have done that have led to that impression that the world has. I would suggest to you that any kind of sense of ways in which like men are oppressive to women that exist in the church did not come from the Bible. And so we need to read the Bible too. We need to look at women's roles and we need to be pressed in terms of how God uses women and think about that as a church. That's part of why we're doing this series. Okay, but look at Scripture because Scripture itself is not some misogynistic text that is designed to oppress women. It's not some misogynistic text that presents women as only negative. It has lots of positive things to say about women, and God uses women in incredible ways. Okay. I want you to also notice in the first two chapters of Exodus the incredible, like, life-giving and nurturing kind of role that women play. Do you see that? Do you see that all of these women are working together to give life, to nurture life, to promote life? In the context of a world, right, led by an, a wicked pharaoh who is trying to end life, right? There's this very beautiful picture of how women engage in this life-giving and life-preserving role uh, that is presented to us as a model. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, oh gosh, there's another white evangelical male standing up in front of the church, and he's about to tell us that women belong barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. That is not what I'm saying. <laughs> I am simply saying that there is something incredibly beautiful and powerful about the role of mothers, about the role of sisters, about the nurturing nature that women have that is God-given and something that God uses in powerful and incredible ways. I also want you to note, right, the incredible active bravery on the part of these women. They are defying the most powerful man in the world. Every single one of them. Every single one of them, from the, the, the nursemaids, right, to, uh, to, to Moses' mom, Miriam, even Pharaoh's daughter. They're all defying the edict of Pharaoh. There is a sense that sometimes gets relayed that women's roles are passive, right? That they're all passive. These women are not passive. They're incredibly, <laughs> they're incredibly active. Think about the bravery that it took for little Miriam to go to Pharaoh's daughter and to, to ask the question that she asked. Do you need someone to nurse this illegal child who's supposed to be killed? Right? Like she's outing herself as someone who is a rebel <laughs> to the daughter of Pharaoh. Incredibly brave, incredibly bold. Women, 
there is a model here (laughs) that goes beyond just barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, submissive, but is rebellious, right? Incredibly brave, incredibly bold, and incredibly faith-filled. So notice that. There's a call to women in this passage as a model. Notice also, too, in this passage, um, marriage as a relationship uh, between men and women takes a back seat in the beginning of this narrative. Who's the married relationship that's discussed in Exodus 1 and 2? Moses' father doesn't even get mentioned until Exodus 6 as a part of a genealogy. He's just mentioned, (laughs) right? You get his mom without his dad. There's sometimes this sense, I think, both in terms of like the outside world's perspective of how the church is viewed and also within the church that really the value, uh, the valuable relationship between men and women is this married relationship. That, that's it. But Scripture presents an incredibly diverse range of different um, relationships between men and women. In this case, right, we have the nurse-child relationship, the mother-son relationship, the sister-brother relationship, the daughter-father relationship, all present in the first two chapters of Exodus. Sometimes I think single folks like Non-married folks can kind of come to the church and feel like second-class citizens, as though the Bible has nothing to say about relationships that you would have with the opposite gender within the church. But that's not true. The Bible presents an incredible range of relationships between men and women. You know, I love that we had that choir moment, right, just before we read the passage of Scripture where it was like, okay, sopranos, altos, right? All the different parts of, of the song, right, were, were taught to us, and we were instructed to sing together in harmony. That is a picture, right, of what our relationships look like. So yes, husband-wife relationships are significant, male-female relationships that are redeemed and used for God's glory in the church, right? They're very significant. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. Don't worry. <laughs> but so are all the other relationships, Men, you have relationships with women in this church that are not your wives. Women, you have relationships with men in this church that are not your husbands. Those are significant relationships that Christ is redeeming for his glory and for his worship and for his good purposes. Oftentimes in the church, we become so wary of potential things that could go wrong in non-married relationships that we try to steer people away from that. We create all kinds of boundaries and set all kinds of rules. And, and, and sometimes that's appropriate. There's some wisdom to that, right? But let's not act like there aren't dangerous kind of dynamics to husband-wife relationships, <laughs> right? As though, like, the only kind of time that we're going to have trouble between men and women is, is if it's outside of the married relationship. Like, listen, that's not the case, God is redeeming all of these relationships and bringing them all together into a harmonious kind of picture of what he's doing. And so I just want to encourage you to think about that. Think about your relationships, you know, with people who are not your spouse, those of you who are married. Those of you who are not married, think about your relationships with people of other genders. God has a purpose for all of those relationships. What is it? What is he calling you to? And how is that beautiful? Um, 
Spend some time thinking about that. Okay. Um, Let's go on with the story. We stopped at Exodus 2. We got to get to Exodus 15. Here's the rest in a nutshell. Um, You know the story. Moses kills an Egyptian, right? He flees to Midian. He meets and marries Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, right? Jethro, who's, you know, advises him for the rest of his life, right? He uh, encounters a bush that's on fire that starts talking to him, tells him to take off his shoes. It turns out to be God. (laughs) He says, I'm calling you to go, like, pull my people, lead my people out of Egypt. I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. Moses is like, whoa, burning bush, God. (laughs) I am slow of speech and tongue. I don't want to go. God says, listen, I don't want to hear about you being slow in speech of tongue. I'm talking through a bush right now. You can go, (laughs) right? (laughs) Moses continues to him and haw, like, I don't know. (laughs) He says, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron. Aaron shows up. Moses is given some miracles that he can do, and he's like, okay, I guess I'll go. So he goes, and very steadily walks through this process with Pharaoh. He's like, the Lord God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. That's a whole other discussion. Anyway, there's all these plagues, right? One after another, all of which are tied to Egyptian gods and goddesses, essentially showing that God is supreme over all of the Egyptian gods, right? It, can, it ends with this very dramatic kind of issue from Pharaoh where he's like, all right, all the firstborn kids are going to get killed again. Um, but then that backfires and it actually winds up being the Egyptians whose firstborn kids are killed in the last plague because of the blood that the Hebrew people put over their doorposts, right? The lamb's blood, significant of Christ's blood, right? Christians, good. Okay, <laughs> right? This institutes the Passover, which is celebrated by Jewish people perpetually, right, going forward because this is one of the greatest kind of pictures of um, uh, God's salvation of their people um, and, and continues to be, right? It is a, a picture, essentially, of Christ and his salvation um, for his people. And so Pharaoh finally is like, okay, you know, enough, like, go. So they go, they get into a cul-de-sac with the Red Sea. It's really nice, right? Until Pharaoh and his army show up, and he's like, ha, kidding, I changed my mind, now die. Um, God <laughs> comes down in a pillar of fire, protects the people. Huh, that's kind of dramatic. That's dramatic enough. But it's not just fire. The sea parts, right? And everybody walks through. Amazing, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and then the fire pillar goes away and enough time for, and then Pharaoh's like, get them! And they go into the waters and right as like the people get out, the waters come crashing down, right? Okay. <laughs> it's a great story, Right? That's why Hollywood keeps wanting to make it into movies, animated or otherwise. It's an incredible story, an incredible picture of how God used Moses primarily from chapter 3 on to bring about the salvation, a very watery salvation, right, of his people. Now, I want you to see something. Notice the beautiful interplay between Moses and Miriam's role in the redemption work that God was doing. There's no Moses without Miriam, but then Moses acts as kind of a defender and essentially, like, is responsible for delivering Marion from the the waters. Sorry, Miriam. I have a daughter named Marion. I get confused. So Miriam, Miriam is saved by Moses. Moses is saved by Miriam. Do you see the beautiful interplay of their relationship? 
Do you see how Miriam serves as kind of a protector, uh, a caregiver, a nurturer in her role? Moses serves as kind of a defender, a champion, um, a deliverer, right? And there's this beautiful harmony between how God worked through both of them. And sometimes all we talk about is Moses. And yet God wants us to see in Exodus 15, it wasn't just Moses. Imagine the beauty of coming through this. They're probably like 80-something years old at this point. And all that God has done in this salvific work through the Exodus, Moses and Miriam in the intimacy of their relationship, right, suddenly see how he was doing all of this perfectly, beautifully, poetically. So we're, we're going to get to more of that. We're going to talk about the worship service specifically, but I do want to pause because this is the point in which um, in, in verse 20, Miriam is referred to as a prophetess. The prophet and prophetess, right, are the two roles that Moses and Miriam have, and I want to just pause to talk about that for a minute. Um, obviously, Moses is the kind of greatest prophet of the Old Testament, widely regarded, right? He's, he's reluctant, <laughs> but God uses him in incredible ways. How is Miriam a prophetess? That's a little bit less clear, right? Like, we don't get her name at the beginning of Exodus. We don't get anything else about anything that she did, right? It's not like Aaron and Miriam that show up to go with Moses to confront Pharaoh, right? It's like, uh, it's not Moses speaking to, like, the people a bunch or Miriam talking to the people a bunch. You don't hear a lot about that, right? She's just referred to as a prophetess here. I would submit to you that there's a couple of different ways in which um, we are told that she is a prophetess that goes beyond um, her just kind of talking to God's people. I think there's a beautiful interplay, again, in the worship service that's, that's revealing kind of the, the, uh, the harmonization of these two roles. Think about this. Moses went to Pharaoh. Miriam went to Pharaoh's daughter. Right? And I talked about the, the, the beautiful kind of like boldness and rebellious nature of that. Both of them had that character in how they approached Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. Miriam was, I would argue, a prophetess in that she went before Moses said, God has said, let my people go. She went to Pharaoh's daughter and said, God has said, let my deliverer go. Do you see? She's a prophetess. And that brings us to the question, what is a prophet? <laughs> um, I had a lot of questions um, asked of me this week because I was talking about this to some people. They were saying, hey, what are you preaching on? And I'm preaching on this. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. And, um, and then I, I was like, yeah, you know, we're going to talk about our prophetic roles. And people are like, am I a prophet? Do I have that gift? Isn't that you, preacher? You're the prophet, right? Not me. Um, I had that conversation with at least three women who were like, I'm not sure I'm a prophetess. And here's what I want you to understand. You need to understand what a prophet is. Everyone kind of thinks that a prophet is something between someone who speaks to God and who tells the future. And that ain't wrong, okay? But that can lead to some misconceptions, right? Like a lot of times people just talk about being a prophet and they're talking about whether or not they can tell the future. Like, can I predict the lotto numbers? No, not a prophet, right? You know, can I, um, can I predict what's going to happen in the church tomorrow? No, 
not a prophet, right? That's, that's not what a prophet is. It's not some sort of fortune teller, right? There are fortune tellers in the Bible. Um, they're not referred to as prophets. <laughs> they're referred to other things as other things, okay? There is a, prof- there is a fortune-telling aspect to what prophets do, right? Um, but it's not just telling the future. Here's the best way that I know to understand it. Think about it in legal terms. Prophets and priests are lawyers, right? Prophets are God's lawyers. Priests are our lawyers. In other words, prophets represent God to the people, and priests represent the people to God. About what exactly? Well, they have a relationship. It's called a covenant, right? A covenant. Now, think about that in legal terms. Have you ever signed a covenant? Those of you who are leasing a house have signed a covenant, right? You have signed an agreement where you agree to pay X number of dollars every month in order to have a house with a roof over your head and water running through the pipes, right? There's some kind of deal that you sign and your landlord signs. Well, what happens if you don't pay your rent? Eventually, one of the lawyers from the landlord is going to come and say, hey, you haven't paid your rent. If you don't pay your rent, I'm going to tell the future. You're going to get kicked out. Do you see? There is a future-telling component (laughs) that lawyers have (laughs) in that situation, right? Prophets in the Old Testament, that's what they're doing all the time. They're going to God's people and they're saying, hey, remember the covenant? Remember the agreement with God? Hey, if you don't do that, there's going to be curses that were stipulated in Deuteronomy, things like famine, right? That's going to come. That's what prophets typically did. They came and they, in some ways, predicted the future related to the covenant promises of God. So do you see how Moses, when he comes and talks to Pharaoh, he's talking about the promises of God. God has made a special purpose for these people to worship me, not to stay here in Egypt and be enslaved to you. I'm telling you the future, Pharaoh. God's going to deliver his people. Let them go. Or... The covenant stipulations dictate that you will have to experience God's wrath in these various different ways, right? You know, like, because they are my blessed people, right? Do you see? He's kind of coming like a lawyer. And so is Miriam to um, Pharaoh's daughter. But more than that, I do believe that Miriam served God's people in a similar way that um, Moses did. He He spoke through her. Okay? He spoke through Miriam to his people. And the reason I know that is Micah 6, 4. It talks specifically, God is saying to his people in Micah, he's like, look, I've given you all this stuff. I brought you out of Egypt. I not only brought you out of Egypt, I gave you these great leaders. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are the three that he lists. She was responsible for leading God's people in significant ways. Now, what are the implications for us for this? Like I said, I had three conversations with three different women in this congregation, and all of them said, I'm not a prophetess. Here's what I want to say to you women. You're all prophetesses, okay? You are all prophets in the same way that all of you men are prophets. You see, what happened in Joel chapter 2, God talks through the prophet Joel, and he says, you know what? Hey, in the olden times, I would pick people. And I would kind of pour out my spirit on them. Elijah, Elisha, right? Micah, Joel, right? Different prophets would get kind of like this incredible experience of me. 
And once they had this incredible experience of me, I would give them my word and they would go and speak that to the people. But in the future, Joel says, I will pour out my spirit on all people and they will dream dreams and have visions, young men, old men, men, women, doesn't matter, everybody. That's what Joel says. Well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter, after receiving the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, goes out and starts talking to all the people. And, you know, all the, all the apostles are kind of like prophesying and speaking in tongues, right? And, and he comes out and he goes, because everybody thinks they're drunk, right? He says, hey, guess what? They're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. So here's the thing, Christians. We believe that all believers are endowed with the Holy Spirit. So you have received the Spirit. You are the fulfillment of Joel 2. You are prophets. It, it, it baffles me because like in, in Protestant circles, we talk about the priesthood of all believers, but we never talk about the prophethood of all believers. But that is true. That is a principle because in Christ, we receive the Spirit and we inherit all of his offices, prophet, priest, and king. You're all three, all the time. Not because you're great, but because Jesus is great and because he has given you his spirit. Now, here's where we get tripped up with this, women, I think, right? There's this verse in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 14. What does it say? <laughs> women should be silent in church, right? Are you familiar with that verse? You've probably heard it or had it quoted to you or wrestled with it or been mad at it or, you know, something. You've had some sort of interaction with that if you've been in the church and you're a woman for any period of time. 1 Corinthians 14, women should, should learn quietly with all submission. If they want to speak, they should wait and go home and talk to their husbands. It's essentially what it says, right? And so is that suggesting that you should be silent through this entire worship service, that you shouldn't say anything, that we shouldn't have women up here reading scripture or giving testimonies, or when we sing, that you should just sit there and wait until you get home with your husbands to sing? Absolutely not, <laughs> If you read 1 Corinthians, the entire book, and not just chapter 14, in chapter 11, it's specifically, Paul is specifically talking about women in the church, right, in the worship service, actively praying and prophesying. What does he mean, prophesying? They're talking about the covenant with other believers in the context of the worship service. What 1 Corinthians 14 is saying is, is, is he's describing, Paul is dealing with this situation in Corinth where it's absolute chaos in the worship service, right? And you just imagine, right? We can't imagine it because we're Presbyterians. Nothing like this has ever happened. But imagine if there was like a food fight and I was up here and I was saying, thus saith the Lord, but somebody out there was like, God didn't say that. You know, and we were having an argument about like whether or not Exodus is actually in the Bible. And like, then I start throwing things and they start throwing things. That was the situation in Corinth. And, and Paul is basically saying, no, listen, like, look, like we're all prophets, but there should be order to our prophecy, right? Like speaking in tongues should be done for the edification of the body, right? That's part of that section, right? He is concerned with the order of the church and exactly this, the message of the promise being clear and present to all people and edifying. And so what he's saying is like, rather than there being these disagreements, if there is a disagreement, this should be worked out at home, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying there are limits to the prophetic authority, like just like everybody has limits to their prophetic authority. I have limits, right? 
I am subject to authority. If I start getting up here and start preaching in a way that is not honoring to Christ, right, I have violated any kind of authority that I have as a pastor. I do have authority as an elder in this church, right? But you know who has more authority? Jesus, <laughs> right? Okay? So we all have differing kind of like levels of authority. That's all Paul is saying in that passage is he's talking about authority. He's not saying women should be absolutely silent, absolutely all the time in worship and never say a word. Okay? So women, hear me. We need your prophetic voices. We need them on Sunday morning. We need them throughout the week. I need them. I can tell you of specific circumstances and times within this church where women have come to me with a prophetic word. They never use that term because we're Presbyterians, right? They come preaching the gospel. That's what we call it. We preach the gospel, right? We don't come with a prophetic word, but that is a prophetic word. If you're preaching the gospel, you are giving a prophetic word. Please, women, preach the gospel. Give prophetic words. I have received that. There was a time when I was... Um, I was um, interviewing for the job at St. David's School where I worked for 10 years. And I was so nervous. And a woman in this church came to me and she said, you know, James, the Bible says we have not been given a spirit of fear. And I was like, you're absolutely right. I was so encouraged by that. I was so challenged by that. And it was such a welcome word from the Lord spoken through a woman prophetically to an elder okay. It's good. When we um, started commissioning women, the Paracaleo team, and we started kind of like empowering women's voices to be spoken throughout the church, I cannot tell you from a pastoral standpoint how helpful that was to people in our church. I watched as their voices speaking the gospel into other people's lives brought flourishing and beauty. Please, women, use your prophetic voice. And two out of the three parts that Danny wanted us to sing this morning were female parts, right? <laughs> Soprano and alto. We need you singing. We need you praying. We need you sharing your testimonies. Now, we will talk about the like authoritative limitations and all of that, but we spent enough time talking about that. I want you to hear this morning the value of your voice. It's consistent throughout Scripture. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament with Miriam. She was a prophetess. God speaks through women. Men, I also need to say this. Moses was reluctant. We have a reputation of being reluctant, not because we don't feel like we have the authority, but because we feel like doofuses. We have a doofus dynamic where we're just kind of like, I can't speak prophetically because who am I? You know, I'm slow of speech and tongue. If God can speak through donkeys and bushes, and all sorts of other things. Jesus says, look, if you guys don't do it, I'm going to make the rocks cry out. Men, we need your prophetic voices. We need you to preach the gospel to other people. We need you to be active in that and not tell God to send somebody else. You are called, along with women. We need both voices. God uses both of them together in harmony to be prophetic in a watching world. Okay? All right, enough of that. On to the worship service. And I have very little time. We had this song that we read, and you were probably like, uh-huh, this is really long. 
Because it never really comes off really well when you read a song with a group of people. It's like monotone. It's like, and then the riders were cast into the sea. <laughs> right? But I want you to see how exuberant the people of Israel were when they sang this, how majestic this song would have been, how amazing it would have been for Moses and Miriam specifically um, as they were singing this song. Have you ever experienced that in worship where it's like you start singing a song and all of a sudden you realize this song is about me. This song is about what God has done in my life this week, right? And sometimes I've seen it in some of your eyes. You start to weep, right? Right? There were tears in Moses and Miriam's eyes, I like to think. The Bible doesn't say it, so, I, you know. But I think, like, think of the beauty of this. The watery rescue that had taken place in both of their lives, that they had both witnessed of each other, that they had both participated in for each other, is brought to its culmination in this incredible moment. And they just burst into song. I love musicals. But, you know, they don't really feel like real life usually because, you know, it's not, not usually like the case that you're just kind of like walking along and all of a sudden you have a happy moment and you're like, there were bells, right? But that's the Christian life. That's why we do this every week. We have to pause every so often and burst into song because God has done amazing things in our life, right? Individually, together. And when we come together and we see our faces Different genders brought together harmoniously with the presence of, of the Holy Spirit by the blood of Christ, that should go deep as it did for them. I want you to look at the subject of the song. Notice um, the poetic beauty of it. Um, we could spend a lot of time with this, but just look at this. There's a juxtaposition about God's enemies being cast down into the sea and his people being raised up, brought to his holy mountain right? And that is the refrain that is sung also by Miriam and, and the women, right? And, and, and there's this, this, this beautiful juxtaposition of, of this is what God is doing over and over, kind of like throughout the song. I want you to understand the names, Moses and Miriam, and what they meant. Do you know what Moses means? This one's a little bit more widely known. Does anybody know? Drawn out, Right? That's what he was called because he was drawn out of the water. Miriam is less obvious. Like, in fact, scholars debate over what her name means. But um, the Hebrew word mayim is water. And they think that, that that may be the origin of the name Miriam. So you have these two leaders of God's people in Scripture that are specifically mentioned. Aaron's not mentioned. There's lots of other people that could have been mentioned that were there. But Moses and Miriam, drawn out water, are singing a song about how God's people have been drawn out from the water while their enemies have been left to die and they've been brought up on the holy mountain. There's a po poetic structure to Exodus 15 where we are meant to see not only the beauty of that moment, not only the beauty of the song, but the beauty of how God has woven these two lives together in order to do this magnificent act. And there's a masculine and a feminine component. There's even masculine and feminine components into the poetry. The language of the ancient world, right, all of those languages had masculine and feminine kind of pieces. They're all brought together in Exodus 15. Masculine and feminine verbiage, 
a man and a woman whose names reflect the actual song that is being sung. Brothers and sisters, as we are brought into the kingdom of God, God takes us, our story, weaves it together with one another in a way that is absolutely beautiful, majestic, and mind-blowing. When we get to heaven, we will experience this to the fullest. Suddenly you'll know how your name, your story, fits in the grand narrative of redemption. And all of a sudden, all of the beauty and majesty of how God used you and how God used other people fused together, men, women, right? Different relationships, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, etc., right? Have all been brought together for the glory of God and you will realize you're in a musical and you can't do anything but sing. Won't that be a majestic and powerful and amazing moment? Right? It's pictured in Revelation 7. I can't wait to get to that service. Growing up, all my friends listened to rock music. I listened to soundtracks, John Williams. I used to drive through Asheville like a crazy person listening to like Star Wars music, thinking I was on the Millennium Falcon. I got so many speeding tickets growing up. You know why? Because an orchestra, I would tell my friends who loved rock. I'm like, and rock's great. I, I like, but an orchestra has so many different pieces. It has the power to move you in so many different ways. Brothers and sisters, as we talk about gender, that's what we're gunning for. Men and women working together for the glory of God to the end of giving glory to God for the work that he has done in and through us for eternity. May we see that here at Christ the King. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, please empower us to do this. It is a difficult time to think about men and women and our relationship together. There's so much brokenness in the fall. And yet, Lord, we know that there is so much more power in your redemption. Would you work through our relationships to give a picture, a glimpse of that to the world? May they long for more. And Lord, we just pray that you would use us to bring people to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.